You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 175. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you like to find your podcasts. I hope we're there. And uh, yeah, Yeah. leave us a review if you can. Yeah, there we go. And visit us at codingblocks.net where you can find our show notes, examples, discussions, and more. And send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net. And follow us on uh, Twitter at CodingBlocks. And uh, if you got a cool project or something, just uh, uh, hit us up, let us know, and we'll share it out, and we want to see it. Uh, also, website, CodingBlocks.net, and uh, we've got social links at the top of the page. With that, I'm Joe Zach. I'm Michael Outlaw. And I'm Alan Underwood. This episode is sponsored by Datadog, the unified monitoring and analytics platform for end-to-end visibility into modern applications. And Linode, simplify your infrastructure and cut your cloud bills in half with Linode's Linux virtual machines. And Shortcut, formerly known as Clubhouse, you shouldn't have to project manage your project management. Hey, so today we are continuing on talking about uh, security training for uh, engineers using PagerDuty's slides that we found, and we've got linked in the show notes. Uh, But first, a little bit of news. We've got some reviews yeah, so from uh, iTunes, uh, okay, so I'm going to, there's like a lot of vowels in this one, <laughs> hardly any consonants, so I'm going to, I'm going to try it, and I'm, I'm sure I'm going to mess it up, but it's going to be something like, uh, Audigo. Oh, uh, I know, oh, you don't know, that sound okay, right? so, so uh, the deal is it's pronounced, O-D-O-D-O-D-O-D-O-D-O. Wait, really? <laughs> Yeah, you never heard that word before. I think you're messing with me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I am. Uh, I, can we get an R S T L N A L N E, please? Yeah, yeah. Maybe this would not be like a Will of Fortune. You would lose on Will of Fortune with that one. <laughs> <laughs> but if you bought a vowel, you'd do really good. That's yeah, right. that's true. That's true. I uh, almost got a uh, half of them in there. Hey, uh, also, this is the last episode that's going to come out. I think. Uh, it's all right. Before the game, um, uh, which is coming up the January 21st, 24th. So make sure you sign up. Uh, you can do team, you can do solo, just make a game, submit it. It's going to be fun. You go in after you submit a game, you go play other people's games. You say, Hey, this one's really quirky or this one's really fun or whatever. And then, uh, things get ranked. Everyone plays your game and it's awesome. So you should go sign up and make a game. There is one more episode before the game jam. All right, cool. So you're going to hear that again. Whatever. All right. So apparently, uh, Alan hasn't been attending our branding classes when we've talked about game January. Yeah, I can't speak this morning. I don't know what's up. I think it's too early. Yeah, it definitely is. Yeah. All right. So we're we're picking back up on this uh, on this pager duty thing that we talked about. And so the very next one that we're going to jump into here are is vulnerability number three, and that's encryption. And, and I think, I think all three of us sort of, when we see this, we're like, Oh man, we don't want to say this, any of this wrong. Right. Yeah. It's so hard to get right. <clears throat> and, uh, OWASP has the more generic category of kind of, uh, cryptographic failures. And, um, uh, just talk about OWASP real quick. Um, in case this is your first episode, basically they're a conglomeration, a group of people that uh, get together, uh, every couple of years and decide on, um, looking at a bunch of stats and security vulnerabilities. What are the, the worst problems facing our apps today? Because what they find over and over again is it's not Stuxnet. It's not the really sophisticated, you know, advanced persistent threats that are really wreaking havoc across the world. It tends to be the same 
10 problems over and over again. And so they've got this one scripted graphic failures, which could be anything from having uh, the same key on the same, uh, you know, accessible in the database or wherever the data is, or maybe it's, um, it's basically just doing it wrong using, uh, you know, coming up with your own custom wrote, uh, custom encryption or doing rotation or, uh, not salting your passwords, anything like that to, to get, uh, get your encryption wrong. And so now we've got some, uh, more information coming up on how to do it right. Yep. And it's probably worth saying what they define encryption as, and it's encoding information in such a way that only authorized readers can access it. So pretty simple. Yep. And uh, that's an informal definition. So yeah, it's so, it's so hard not to want to kind of caveat all over the place, especially, uh, especially problematic because I like, I'm not qualified, but I did want to mention that there are mathematic uh, definitions of, cryptography and encryption and even those two terms like we kind of use them like as if they're synonymous but um they've got they've got pretty rigid definitions that were you know probably go back to like uh, i don't know 400 bc or something so uh <laughs> we're gonna do our best and just hope you stick with this is that hey, bc it, as in before computer yep okay. <laughs> yeah so like you know 40 years ago um you know you know what's What's probably a really good resource for anybody that hasn't heard us talk about it before is Security Now. Steve Gibson goes over this stuff, it seems like, all the time. Um, so if you want more listening material, you could go search his podcast, Security Now, as well, where he deep dives some of this stuff um, frequently. So, you know, just, just a side note, we'll put a link to a show in, in the show notes as well. And then now we can get into the meat of what we're going to hit on sort of a surface level. Yeah. And I think uh, I, there's one more caveat I got to slip in here. It'd just be total pain, which is just that I want to really hammer home that encryption is so, so tough to get right. And that, uh, you know, it's kind of become a meme now at this point that you should never try to create your own encryption. And it's kind of counterintuitive. Like people always are, you know, I think there's like a natural inclination to kind of think that like, well, if I do something custom, if I just do do this my way, if I just divide by two, if I just do this kind of thing that no one's ever heard of, that's totally custom and totally unique, uh, the chances of someone figuring that out is going to be much smaller than if I'm using some common tools that they've seen before. But uh, there's all sorts of mathematical reasons why that's uh, a no-no. And uh, it's just we've seen time and time again that that strategy doesn't work and it gets broken constantly and you read about it all the time unfortunately so just try to remember that and if if you are thinking about doing something custom because it seems a little bit easier uh you should just try googling for rolling your own encryption just kind of reading up on it because it's kind of hard to really explain why like encryption and why mathematical mathematical security researchers always kind of uh, assume the algorithm is known for crypto cryptography and encryption but it's really important that you not mess it up so just Give it a Google. I, I always viewed it as if if you think that you're going to roll your own and that it'll that it'll be secure. It's one of those problems where it's like you don't see the forest for the trees type of thing. So you think that like you've created something super secure, but you know somebody else who's looking at it with a fresh set of eyes, looking at it starting from a distance, they're like, oh wait a minute, I totally see the pattern, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you just XOR everything, you you know up close, you're like, I got it, nailed it, and then you know you look at it from a distance, you're like, wait a minute. Yeah. Yep. I mean, we can't stress that enough. Like the, the pager duty slides even have their recommended 
algorithms and stuff to use because computers get faster all the time. Right. And so the things that were good 10 years ago, aren't even good today. So, so pick the libraries that are recommended at this time, whenever you're listening to this, to, to go do your, your cryptography, your, your encryption or whatever it is, because it it really don't do it yourself. (laughs) Just don't. So I guess with that, let's get into the, the different types of encryption out there. There's, there's not a ton. Um, there's symmetric and asymmetric. And this, this basically refers to whether the keys for reading and writing the encryption are the same. So symmetric encryption means that you're going to use the same key to encrypt that you're going to use to decrypt that information. Asymmetric is different. Asymmetric, you encrypt, and usually it's a public-private thing. With asymmetric encryption, you're going to encrypt it with a public key, and then when somebody, when you get it, you're going to decrypt it with your private key. And the, and the idea is anybody can encrypt using the public key. So if you want to send something secure to outlaw, right? He's got a public key that you can use to encrypt the data. And then when he gets it, he's the only person in the world that's supposed to have that private key to unlock it. Right. And it's a big mathematical equation, right? Is, is really what it boils down to. So there's some sort of formula that allows the one encryption key to work with the other one decrypting it. Yeah, and uh, another one that to mention is a block cipher, which is uh, the the word block there is the key because it lets you encrypt and decrypt whole chunks. So you can imagine like you encrypt the whole file at once. And uh, basically, if any piece of that file is missing, like you only retrieve half the file um, or, you know, even a couple bits or bytes are off at the end, then you can't decrypt it because it requires the whole chunk. And uh, we got things in a slightly different order, but just to kind of contrast it, we'll mention the next one is the stream cipher, which is meant to be more on the fly. So you can think about something like HTTPS um, or anything you use like, H, you know, streaming protocols where you can start reading before you have the entire message. So you can start sending the data and you can start decrypting as soon as you receive that first byte. We should call out. Really- oh, go ahead. Hey. Oh, it's all good. We, we should call out too, though, that like, PagerDuty specifically separated public-private key from uh, asymmetric, and yeah, I wasn't did. really sure why. Because technically, it is a form of asymmetric encryption. It's probably the most common form of asymmetric, right? So I I don't know either. Yeah, it was kind of weird. I thought it was weird that they put block cipher in front of it, and so the arrangement was kind of weird too. But yeah, it, public-private is kind of weird. And you know what's funny about um the public private key is uh you can do a lot like so many encryption schemes basically deal with like public private so like if i'm trying to write to outlaw well i've got uh his public key and i write to him and he can decrypt it now if he wants to communicate with me well now he's got my public key and i've got a private key that can decrypt it but um so the strategy overall is not that bad but the hard part is like how do we dynamically kind of send those keys and how do we rotate them like the devil's in the details there yeah. Yeah, I don't we're not even going to talk about nonces. No. Right? No, HMAX and yeah, I, it's there's so much. <laughs> it's a lot. It's such it's a, a topic. Yeah, I mean it really is. So like the thing is is that PagerDuty did a really good job of describing what you needed to know without like getting too lost in the weeds of it because it is an extremely complicated topic that you can very easily 
say one thing and like all of a sudden everything he said is wrong, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, but they kind of, they shoot straight down the middle of the road basically. So these are like the most common kind of compasses that you hit and uh, they hear. And like we mentioned earlier, uh, it's usually the easy kind of basic stuff that people get wrong over and over again. Mm-hmm. So, so the ones that we just talked about a second ago are usually what you would consider encryption at rest, right? So, so when you store a file on your hard drive, right? And then, and then you encrypt it with either the symmetric or asymmetric or the block cipher or any of that kind of stuff. That's usually what you call encryption at rest because the data is encrypted and just sits there. There's also encryption in transit, which depending on whether you're in the security world or not, you might hear it as data in motion or, or other names, right? But that means that you're encrypting the stuff while it's going, which is what, you know, we probably all know as our HTTPS in our browsers, or if you heard of TLS or what used to be SSL, right? Like that was the purpose of those things. Well, you could make the analogy that if you have an encrypted hard drive, that would be at rest. And then anytime you go to a website that's HTTPS, that's in transit. Yep. And, it, and for people who don't really know what the HTTPS and the TLS stuff is, I, I it's funny. I was at a at a conference a couple of years ago before the whole COVID stuff hit, and and it was funny. Uh, Troy Hunt, who is really big on security stuff, right? Like I think he has the I have been pwned or whatever that website is. Have I been pwned? Um, have I been pwned? He was talking and he said, you know, a lot of people, and, and it's actually marketing. It's marketing's fault that people think this. They'll see a lock up in their browser, and they think that that means that their information's secure. And that's that's different, right? That lock in your browser says that when you're talking to the website, all the data going back and forth between the website is secure. That doesn't mean that they're storing anything secure. It doesn't mean that they have good encryption protocols. It doesn't mean any of that. It just means that the chances of somebody doing a man-in-the-middle attack or hijacking that traffic when you put in your username and password is very low, right? In terms of the likeliness, it does not mean anything about how they're handling your data once they have it. So just be aware of that, right? Like they they are two totally different things, moving data and storing data. Yeah, there was actually, uh, because remember when Google was making a big to do about the type of certificate. So if you had a, um, an extended validation certificate. They would actually show the name of the company, but then they stopped doing that because it was put in like the wrong, it's basically what you're describing. It's like the wrong and fastest on the wrong syllable. Right, right. right. Exactly. It's making you think that it's something more than it, than it is. And so they stopped doing that now and they, now it's just back to the normal padlock. Yep. I did learn something in this pager duty thing. Um, I had never heard of this perfect Ford secrecy. Mm. Um, had you guys come across this before? Yes. You want to describe it there, Outlaw? Uh, I don't know if I'll do it a, a really good job, but Steve Gibson definitely has done it. This is The idea here is that, um, let's say, let, okay, so as Alan said earlier, computers always get faster, and uh, you know, so what, what's good encryption today isn't necessarily good encryption yet, uh, tomorrow, right? Well, the idea is that, like, what if you had, like, a large, uh, you know, nation-state actor that could just vacuum up all the traffic and hold on to it for a while. And eventually they know that they'll be able to decrypt it. 
right? And then maybe they can't today, but eventually they will be. So the idea of perfect forward secrecy is it's trying to solve that type of problem so that not only is it, you know, you can't break the encryption today, but you also won't be able to break it tomorrow. Yeah. And the way that they do that, and this is what was interesting. This is why they say, don't try and roll your own is because you probably wouldn't even thought about this case, right? Like what outlaw said is you hold on to this data for a long time. What they do essentially is, is create like a session type thing. So, so that your encrypted data, while it may be using the same encryption keys and stuff, it almost has like its own salt essentially as a session so that while they might be able to decrypt this one set of data that came across, they wouldn't be able to decrypt all of it for all time, right? Because each each session of data that comes through is going to have its own unique piece of data there that's going to keep them from being able to decrypt every single thing that ever came across on that particular certificate or whatever. So it's, again, it's just not something you probably think about if you're trying to roll your own. So again, you, you really, really want to stick with the tools available out there. Yeah, and it's it's just a matter of how much work you have to do. So if you imagine if um you know you did the work once, you figured out the key, and now you can see all traffic going to or from Microsoft.com. Uh, it's the difference between that and having to do the work for each session session. So you have to keep figuring it out again. So it's just a technique for kind of uh, generating those keys, like you said, for for the, for the session, yep. uh, which is really nice. Uh, so encryption arrest, um, we talked about uh, over the wire, data in motion. And, and now we're basically talking about storing the data where or encrypting the data where it's stored. So like full disk en- encryption is an example. Um, sometimes like uh, on like cloud platforms, S3 or whatever, you can check a little box and, and have those uh, items encrypted uh, where they're actually stored. It means if somebody like steals the hard drive, they still have some work to do uh, with uh, to, in order to access your data. Yep. So that's also really important to know if you're somebody that does have one of these laptops that has full disk encryption on, like, I mean, I know for the Dells for a long time, when you go to turn on the laptop, it'd ask you for a password, right? To, to be able to log into it. And that's what essentially decrypts the data on the disk. Don't ever share that password, right? Um, there, there are companies that would use the same password for all the laptops. So you probably shouldn't do that either. So if you know that there's, if that's being practiced, then that means any attacker, if they got a hold of a bunch of hard drives somewhere, they could go get all the information off of it. Right. So you definitely want to be careful about that stuff. Yeah. Like even on the, the Macs nowadays, like they'll, they will, uh, prompt you first for your password during the boot sequence, just so that it can decrypt the drive so that it can continue the boot process. Yep. And and it's really, especially for businesses, it's important, but probably even on your own personal computer, right? Like if you're using something that allows for disk encryption, computers have gotten so fast nowadays. Back in the day, they didn't want to do it because it took a performance hit, right? Nowadays, if you can, I'd say do it, right? I mean, if, if you've got personal tax information or whatever's on your laptop, you don't really want that being grabbed by, by an attacker out there. I mean, like take iOS devices, for example. I mean, it's by default. They're, they're mm-hmm. encrypted by default. You don't even get asked anymore. Like it used to be a thing like, you know, back in the first couple of versions where you could like, you know, select to turn that feature on, but now it's just, it's done. And, and when you go to uh, er, quote erase your iPhone to reset it, it's just throwing away the key. Oh, that's awesome. I didn't even know that. So it's not even, it's not even formatting the thing it just makes it all gibberish. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, cause like why bother, right? It, right. It's technically that's a, a, 
a bad operation to do on any kind of SSD anyways to like, you know, to write to it unnecessarily would be bad. And, you know, if you throw away the key, then that's, that's it. That's all that's necessary anyways. That's pretty cool. Didn't know it. It's, it is weird though. Cause there's like some, uh, solutions out there for encryption. Cause like, you know, like we mentioned uh, file vault that's built into the Mac operating system does a really good job of it. But then for the windows platform, there is BitLocker, but there's also like a uh, third party solutions out there too. And it's curious to me, like how some of them work because some of them, uh, you know, you can have your password to decrypt it, but so, but an admin can have a separate password and somehow it works. And then I'm like, wait a minute, that's like mind boggling because isn't that the, like, shouldn't that not work? Like right. how, how do you, how are you both able to, you know, decrypt it with different keys? Uh, I, I got to imagine that like the software itself must be storing a key somewhere and, you know, you're, you're authenticating to that and getting the real key with one of two IDs, but you'd hope so. Even then well, that seems kind of like, you know, like in the, bad. yeah. Cause it, it seems very much like you're rolling your own in that kind of scenario. Cause then it's like, well, wait a minute. Can I just crack that little, that little database? Mm-hmm. So uh, I know there's some pretty funky algorithms out there. I don't, I don't know what they're doing there, but um, I've heard uh, tales of encryption schemes where you can have two different keys and each one can work. I've also heard of a really weird, uh, you know, weird to me uh, case where there are encryption schemes where you can have multiple keys, say seven keys, and any three of the keys can decrypt. So that would be an example. You can imagine like a military purpose or something like seven generals have keys. And as long as any three of them agree, they can un- encrypt the data, but no one key alone can do it. Well, that's different though. That's not, that's, that's like a, God, I can't even think of it. it it's a consensus, right? It's like what you said, right? Like one person can't push the red button in start right. of war, right? Like there's gotta be multiple people that do it. Uh, as a matter of fact, HashiCorp vault also has a similar type thing to where, you can require that there be a certain number of people do something because they don't want people to be able to unseal the vault and get to all the stuff. So yeah. Um, but that doesn't seem as, is quite the same as having two passwords to get to yeah. the same key. That's just multiple passwords to unlock something. So I, I don't know. It, it does seem weird. Um, but at any rate, one of the things that, <clears throat> excuse me, pager duty does say in here. And, and I completely agree with this is the most important data to them is the customer data. Right. And and they do go into the multiple types of classification of data that they have. And they only have three, I think. Yeah. Um, so the first one's general data, anything available to the public. They don't care about that data whatsoever. It could get leaked. Doesn't matter. Not going to hurt anybody or anything. Then they have their business data. This is this is their data for operating the business. And they called this like payroll information or employee information or whatever. Um this they encrypt in transit and at rest, which is really good. You want that. And then customer data. This is data that was provided to the company by the customer. And this is also encrypted in transit and at rest. So they take all of those seriously. Now they did have some, some controls that they put over the data that was interesting. And honestly, I wonder how you guys feel about this. Like when they said that they treat their customer data more important than their employee data, that kind of bothered me a little bit because if you're in their payroll system, that means that that means that you've actually got your social security number in their systems, right? And that kind of stuff. 
Now, granted, they said they encrypt in transit and, and at rest, but you're almost a customer of them, right? So it, it kind of bothered me that they said that this was not as important as customer data. I, I don't know. Yeah, I remember uh, Amazon had uh, the distinction between customer data and employee data too, and the customer was like red, red, red. It was like the most critical, and and employee was less. Um, uh, but yeah, it, uh, it seems like if you can get into the employee stuff, it'd be easier to get into customer stuff. So I don't really, I, I never understand the distinction either. Yeah. So here's what here's the controls that they wrapped around it, and this is also where it's sort of gray to me in terms of why they made this decision. So. The customer data, they control the Titus. And that means they they take care of authentication, access control, storage, auditing, encryption, and destruction. So that's all the types of things that they wrap around it. The only difference between that and their business data was they did all of it except for auditing. And that just doesn't make sense to me. To not audit the business controls? Yeah. Yeah. Like it. I'm with you on that. Like that was like the only distinction. And like, why would you not want to audit who has, who's accessing the payroll information or totally. anything like healthcare related? Yeah. Yeah. And, I and mean, I'm I understand trying, their point though. Yeah, totally. I'm, I, and I'm not trying to rip page your duty apart. Like super appreciate the fact that they put this out there for other people to learn from. But I mean, auditing seems like it should be a core feature of anything that has sensitive data. You need to know who logged into a system when they logged in from what computer, all that kind of stuff. Right. So it just seems like that should be wrapped around all of it. So again, not, not trying to throw stones at them, but if, if you're doing it, just do it for all of it. Like auditing makes sense. So, so what if, what if by business they mean more like, you know, chat messages and emails and not like sensitive, uh, employee data because then it's not so bad right then you're like okay i get it yeah maybe except for they're the ones that said that their business operation stuff was payroll <laughs> and, and employee info so yeah i don't know um may, maybe they have it around things like payroll which would be good um we don't know we're not part of the business but but yeah it, 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 i yeah. do think that you should audit it yeah you're right they did list out specifically the list of employees and payroll information. Yeah. So whatever. Um, but at the end of the day, like if somebody found out, you know, how much you made, that's not like devastating to you. Right. You know, it's just, if you're SOS, if your social security numbers in there or something yeah, like that's that, that's devastating. Right? So, right. And that's, that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah, who knows what's in their payroll systems. Again, we don't work there. We don't see that stuff, but it, it was an interesting distinction. Um, who rolls their own payroll anymore? Like ADP <laughs> done. <laughs> right that's what for you real. should do yeah, yeah companies don't use their own software <clears throat> for real um, do you think there's any company that uses a hundred percent their own stack what What about the um couch not couch base um fire no oh, the people who wrote ruby and rails it seems like that's no they don't do it either yeah, I don't know, man. I would think nowadays you wouldn't. It's just too expensive to to even try and create that kind of stuff that's not core to your business. Well, because the thing is, is that like you you take a look at like a big company like an Amazon or a Microsoft, even you know they absolutely have the ability to. But mm-hmm. when you get to a certain point, it's like, do you even want the liability of it? Right. So so it might be, you know, more uh, advantageous from a liability perspective to. Let somebody else handle it. That way, you know, 
you can wash your hands of it, even if you do have the ability to deal with it. And that service might end up using your systems to run it. Like in mm-hmm. the case of AWS, <laughs> you hire an ADP and they're running on top you know, of AWS, for example. I don't know if they are, but you know, you could picture a situation like that where like everything's running on top of uh, AWS. I, I, this is total tangent, tangent alert, tangent alert. <laughs> Uh, but speaking of AWS, I read, I read something recently where, um, they were talking about how dependent it was an older article, but it was talking about how dependent Apple is on Amazon care to take a gander at how much the, the Apple bill for AWS was per month. 2 million. What'd you say? 2 million. 2 million. The M. Um, I, I'm going to say 1 billion. <clears throat> One billion. Wow. You guys are like whew, drastically different. Uh, it was 30 million a month. Wow. wow. Yeah. And this was an old article too. This was, this was like a couple years old too. So who knows? Could be more, could be less. Interesting. And that yeah. with all the topical information, you know, now you're up to date with, you know, old, uh, <laughs> Apple news <laughs> up to the minute, a few years late. We're good. Yeah. Yep. yeah. <laughs> I like that up to a minute, a few years late. Yeah. I'll have to trademark that phrase. Uh, so here's another thing that PagerDuty said when they were talking about like using cloud systems. And this is really important for anybody that's using AWS, Azure, Google Cloud, whatever, right? Is they said you have to make sure you're enabling encryption on all the various services. Um, if you're using storage like S3 or GCS or blob storage in Azure, you want to make sure they do it. Now, one thing that they said that as a developer, you know, is not the reality is they're like, Hey, anytime that you provision something, make sure you click that box, that checkbox, right? Which means that they're doing it via UI. So in, in the real world, as a developer, you're automating a lot of that setup, right? Like if you, if you're provisioning buckets or whatever to store your data, it's not a checkbox. There's a configuration somewhere that you've got to set. Well, you and iterate to that though, right? You do iterate to that, yes. But on top of that, there's also additional things that come with it, right? Like whether or not you're using cloud managed keys or customer managed keys and all that kind of stuff. So the only real call out that I wanted to make here is be aware for most cloud services that you use that there is the ability to encrypt data either at rest or in transit. Be aware that those exist. Go find them before you implement anything and turn that stuff on. I, I kind of viewed it as like a, a sign of how mature are you at using that particular service? Because in the beginning, it's always like, oh, what is? How does this thing work? Let me, you know, let me point and click around, and like, okay, I kind of got an idea of it, and you know, I want this feature on, I want that feature on. Hey, can I script it? What's the API? And then you, then you eventually. You know, you start out with like a simple shell script and then you might, you know, put a UI on top of that, you know, or, or make it to where it's automated in some kind of fashion. But, you know, the, these things start small. And so, you know, in the beginning, you might have to manually click that button. But then over time, you know, you have some kind of script that's just always setting the encryption. But I also viewed this whole section, too, as like an example of the old uh, phrase of you're only as strong as your weakest link. So if you're you know, if, if all your data in transit is encrypted, okay, fine. I'll just wait for you to write it to disk. Cause if you're right. not encrypting it there, then, you know, that's good enough for me. Right. And you know, another thing that and we might've even had tips on this in the past 
uh, like what Outlaw was saying is typically you'll iterate towards this the scripted solution or the automated solution. A lot of the UIs, I know Google does it, Azure does it. I'm, I would be completely shocked. I know Amazon does it as well. Is if you click your way to creating something like a bucket per se, a lot of times right at the end of it, you can say, hey, show me the configuration output, right? Give me the JSON for what I just did. Or YAML. The UI. Say what? Or YAML. Or YAML. Yeah, give me the JSON or the YAML. Or or sometimes yeah, I know GCP even has the Cloud Shell scripts, right? So, mm-hmm. um, so do that just so you're aware. Now, there are people out there using things like Terraform, and I would hope that Terraform is pretty complete in this regard. But I would say you also want to check if you're if you're provisioning a service through Terraform to create something, make sure that the underlying service does provide encryption and make sure that that's exposed also through your Terraform scripts, right? Like if you're using some sort of, you know, cloud agnostic way of doing things, make sure that it supports this ability to keep your data secure. It doesn't even have to be like any of these big cloud providers though that we're talking about. Like the, really the one that came to mind as I was going through this section was, do you remember Citus? Oh, I do. Citus yeah. data. So for those not, uh, that haven't experienced Citus, Citus is a cloud service for Postgres where, um, I'm not sure, like at least their big claim to fame in my mind. Uh, and, and they probably have a lot of other features. So I'm probably like, you know, uh, undermining what they what they do but one of the big things that they are, that they have as a capability that they add on to postgres is a sharding by uh, like a customer so you could you could have one database one multi-tenant database and it'll um, shard that by each individual customer for you and deal with all the underlying uh, details therein but they can do that on like a, at a cloud level so you could you could um, originally you could use it for uh, on AWS or on top of Azure or whatnot, uh, they eventually got bought by Microsoft. And last I saw, uh, they their offerings for non-Azure platforms were were um, somewhat dwindling at the time, only because their focus was on Azure. But um, I mean, I, that they were an example of like you know, it's not it's not a big cloud provider thing, but yet they were totally scriptable. You could you know they totally had an API that you could figure out, you know, how to, how to create your, uh, you know, a Citus data database, um, you know, in, well, that's in a great call do it in so an automated to, fashion. Yeah. You're talking about like software as a service type things, right? Like, yeah. What, whatever you're using out there, see if, yeah, if it, if it matters, if it's data that matters, see that you can do encryption, in transit and at rest because databases specifically are like one of those areas of like when you want to talk about encryption at rest where it can be, you know, uh, a trade-off conversation, right? Like, ah, do I want to? Cause man, like that, that encryption is definitely going to hurt. It's definitely going to hinder my ability to read fast. And so like, there's might be a side of you that's like, Hey, let's go for performance and, you know, not care about the encryption, uh, at rest part, but you know, then you get, then you get hit with some, uh, you know, nasty, um, uh, data leakage because you didn't encrypt it. So, yeah. So, so there's another tangent for you. Um, does it even matter anymore? What's that? The leakages, like how many notifications do you get that your data has been leaked now? I, I think, 
I think in 2020, I might have gotten four from from healthcare providers to banks to whatever. And it's like, I remember you guys remember back when Target had its first data breach and it was a massive deal. Their stock took a hit. Like everything was like, oh my God, the sky is falling. Oh, you know, I was they thinking leaked of Sony it. as the first. Like, oh, remember the Sony? Because they got yeah. hit like multiple times. And it was yeah. like, oh, you still haven't learned your lesson. Okay, well, here's another one. We've been in your network for five years now. Yeah. But nowadays, Home yeah, Home Depot, that's right. But, but nowadays, it honestly feels like I get these notifications. I get, I get mail, right? Like snail mail is like, hey, I'm sorry. Um, we let your data get out. Here's a year of free monitoring, right? Like I, I've yep. probably got 10 of those offers in, in the mail. And it's like, I, so, does it matter? So where I think it matters is that uh, we we talked about this a little bit on the past episode as it related to like rainbow tables and whatnot. So you should definitely be aware that every time there's a data leakage like that, um, you know, the bad guys, they're collecting those, those databases and, and they're, they're going through and like, okay, I, I already know this password or uh, here's, you know, the same email address from, you know, I found the same email address in the target breach that I found in the Home Depot breach. And, um, you know, now I can compile a list of like their secret questions, right? Because over here, he, you know, he or she said what high school they graduated from. And over in this other breach, they said uh, what city they were born in. And so now I'm starting to compile enough, enough information. Oh, I got this other breach that now gives me their social security. So now I know their social security, where they were born. Uh, pretty soon I'm going to get to birth date. And now I can like, you know, uh, start combining all this data to like, you know, create, uh, like here's, here's a list of identities that I could sell out on, you know, uh, the quote dark web, um, right. you know, so that, so that type of thing is definitely happening. You know, I mean, like we, we worked at, uh, you know, a place where every time there was a, uh, outage, we were g- getting a copy of that, uh, that data leakage to see like, Hey, are any of our users part of this? And if they are, we want to let them know, Hey, you need to change your password because you used the same password with us that you used on this other place. Right. Right. Um, so, I mean, people are doing some good things with it now, you know, does it mean, you know, is it, is it all doom and gloom that, uh, maybe we once thought it was, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think that the, I think the evolution of, the hacks has like it used to be uh you know the evolution of hacking was like oh let's just you know tear up your computer right tear up your own personal computer but i don't benefit from it in any way and then over time it evolved into like oh hey uh i'm gonna go out and i'm gonna steal 60 million people's credit cards and now i can either sell those or i can run up charges on it and i can get stuff and now i can benefit from it but you know it's like i'm gonna do like you know a thousand microtransactions in order to get something big. Or now it's like evolved into, Hey, let me just get into your network and encrypt a bunch of your stuff. And now I'll ransom you. And so you, the individual person whose data might be impacted, eh, I don't care about you, but the, the overall company I do care about. Right. Because I want to go after the, the deeper wallet, the deeper. So, uh, I went and looked at Have I Been Pwned, and they've kind of, you know, it's a website we've talked about many times. So it's basically kind of almost made a business or a, a website out of looking up passwords or email accounts to see if uh, if it's been compromised. And they have a list of the most recently added breaches, and they also have a list of the largest breaches, so the largest collections of passwords. Uh, recently added breaches. 
go through the top five here and tell me if you've heard of any of them. Uh, Ducks Unlimited. Yeah, one billion. IDC Games. No. Yeah, four billion. Uh, Gravatar. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I did hear about that breach. That was 114 billion accounts. Or sorry, million, million accounts. And the last one was Pro Temps. So that, that was the five most recently. So like, you know, we were only even aware, even though each like those were millions. We're talking in millions and we hadn't even heard of most of them. Uh, largest breaches. So these are kind of silly to talk about, but I just wanted to mention it because it was interesting. Uh, the collections here are, um, they're not necessarily from individual uh, breaches. So they're like, um, for example, like the number one, 772 million accounts is uh, called collection number one. It's because it's uh, somebody had amassed the collection from all these other things they aggregated, and that this thing is being passed around as a big group. Uh, number two, verifications.io. Never heard about it. Uh, online spammer, uh, spam bot accounts, uh, data enrichment exposure from PDL, and then finally, exploit.in. Uh, the next one on the list, uh, I said I was only going to do five, but the next one was Facebook, which is interesting. So that one was 500 million. I don't know that I'd ever heard of the Facebook one. It was years ago. Uh, um, if it's the one I'm thinking of, because there was an exploit where uh, it was the way they were dealing with impersonation, if I recall. So um, I think that's a different thing. Uh, this one is, uh, you can click on it and see, uh, this came from April 2021, where a large data set of over 500 million uh, was made freely available for download, uh, encompassing about 20% of Facebook subscribers. Wow. And it was allegedly obtained from uh, exploiting a vulnerability on Facebook uh, from 2019. So maybe that's the tie-in. So I, the, the thing is, is I was being a little bit facetious, right, with the does it even matter? Yeah, of course it does. But I think it's just as important on you as an individual to make sure that you're using different passwords. If you can use different usernames on sites, right? I mean, some sites require that you use your email and you're kind of locked into a few of those that you have. Um, <laughs> and we actually had a conversation at work about this the other day. Emails are so irritating because you might say that, Hey, well, I'll just use that plus in my Gmail, right? And, and put things in there. But so many companies don't do pass or our email validation properly. So it'll break in any number of various spots, right? So I just stopped using the plus when I would use my email as a username because I found out that half the time it would work and half the time it wouldn't. So, you know, just, do your due diligence and make sure you're not ever using the same password. Have it randomly generated. Um, if you can swap out your usernames, that kind of stuff. And, and that'll help if there's one leak on one side over here and it wouldn't, shouldn't affect you on these other ones. I mean, we're getting there with the ability to swap out your usernames rather easily there, right? Cause there was that new ability that Apple added to iOS. Uh, I think it was this year where, um, what do they call it? Where the, the, the email hiding where they'll generate, uh, like it's basically like a proxy email address that they'll create like an, uh, a bogus iCloud.com email address. And then anything that goes to that, they'll know to forward to you. Yeah. I actually like that. You know, I always hated the, uh, anytime that you go to sign into a new account, it'd be like, Hey, do you want to use Google or do you want to use Twitter? You want to use whatever. And the problem I always had with those is, if you said yes to use your Google account, it would request access to your entire profile, right? And it was like, I don't really want you to have access to my entire profile because I want to download a white paper on something, you know? Um, but the Apple thing that the outlaws talking about was actually pretty amazing because 
you could actually say, yeah, don't share any of my information. Just give the email that you're going to generate, not even my real one. And then you could authenticate with Apple. And in, in my opinion, that was like the best of all these OAuth type providers out there. Like it was, they did a really good job of keeping your information private. But yeah, um, I, I never used that, uh, that feature with the OAuth to like log in with your Twitter or Gmail or whatever other account, you know, I mean, the reason to me, it seemed like the only benefit, the only person who really benefits from it, well, they try to make it like convenient for you. And that right. that's Easy how they sell in. it to you is, you know, it's a convenience measure and security. Uh, <clears throat> security I've always viewed as like, it's not supposed to be convenient. If it, if it's convenient, it, then you're doing something wrong. Um, but the only entity who really benefits from you using that feature is the company. So like, um, if you use your Google account to access into some other service, then it's Google that's benefiting because now that's like one more signal that they can use to track like, Oh yeah, you also shop here or, you know, visit that or, you know, have this interest in this. And, you know, I'm just like, why bother? Yeah, that's true. All right. So, so we, we veered a little bit off the tracks here a little bit. The last, the last thing that we were talking about was the, the fact that they wanted you to check a box to encrypt things, right? In S3 or whatever. So one interesting thing that they did say about it is if you create a resource in the cloud that wasn't encrypted, they get an alert. And so the admins at PagerDuty will actually go delete the resource, right? They'll, they'll, they may contact you and be like, Hey, why'd you do this? But they will actually remove it. Um, and so that's pretty good. And then the next thing that they said is, well, what if you're using some other third party and, and outlaw mentioned Citus, right? Um, should they encrypt if you care about the data? Absolutely. Like, yes. Um, as a matter of fact, I'm J- Joe Zach, he, Joe, here I go again. Um, Jay Z <laughs> mentioned, um, that, you know, at Amazon, there were certain practices they did and they were super serious about security, which was always something that I know I loved about them. And I think all of us did. Um, but they had auditing protocols in place for third parties. If you were going to use a third party vendor, they had security audits that said, Hey, do they do this, 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 and this? And if they didn't, you couldn't use them. So either they had to get their ducks in a line or, or in a row or or you had to find another vendor like that. That's all it was. You didn't even have any other options. So, um, absolutely they should encrypt. And this also, they said that you should perform a vendor assessment, which, you know, like I just said, Amazon does. Today's episode of coding blocks is sponsored by Datadog, the monitoring and security and analytics platform for developers, it operation teams, security engineers, and business users in the cloud age. Their SaaS platform integrates and automates infrastructure monitoring, application performance monitoring, and log management to provide unified, real-time observability of customers' entire technology stack. Datadog is used by organizations of all sizes and across a wide range of industries to enable digital transformation and cloud migration, drive collaboration among development operations, security, and business teams, accelerate time to market for applications, reduce time to problem resolutions, secure applications and infrastructure, understand user behavior, and track key business metrics. So it's that time of year where I start looking at like New Year's resolutions and 
uh, just looking at kind of planning my career and the things that I'm, I spend time with. And Datadog keeps coming up because the things that I'm interested in for managing my own career are cloud, um, site reliability engineering, big data, streaming, application performance and security. These are all things that Datadog does in spades and they have tools and dashboards and visualizations for really taking everything that I want to do and uh, getting it to a professional level. So it's awesome to see what they do. It's inspirational, but it's also uh, really important for actually using this stuff kind of in the real world and kind of taking your your operations to the next level. So you've got to go to the website and check out. Yep. So you can start your free Datadog trial today so you can monitor and collaborate in real time. Listeners of this podcast will receive a free t-shirt once you install the agent and create your first dashboard. Visit datadoghq.com slash coding blocks. Again, that's datadoghq.com slash coding blocks to get started today. Okay, well, it's that time. So uh, buckle up because here we go. Dear listener, if you would be so kind as to leave us a review, we would greatly appreciate it. You can find some helpful links at www.codingblocks.net slash review. And oh, by the way, you can leave us a review on Spotify now. Did you guys know that? I'm kind of breaking yeah. character here. But no, I didn't know that. Yeah, Spotify added a new feature to where you can, uh, uh, within the app, uh, it seems like it's only within the app, though. Like, I didn't see how you could do it from the website. Um, well, that's fine. I'd say just about everybody has it installed now. Yeah, I even installed the Windows version, like the app. Oh, really? That's very cool. I'll have okay. to update the uh, the review page to have a link to this as well. Yep, yep. Yeah, so cool stuff there. All right, um, so with that, we head into my favorite portion of the show, Survey Says. All right, uh, so a couple episodes back, we asked, how likely are you to give a presentation? And your choices were, extremely likely to attend one. Oh, you mean speak at one? Oh, no, definitely not. Extremely likely to think about giving a presentation, maybe a little daydream about how awesome I'd be at it, or extremely likely to say that I will give a presentation, but go through with it. Ain't nobody got time for that. Or extremely likely to actually give a presentation. I love the opportunity to learn something and share it with others. All right. This is what episode 175. So Alan, According to Tatutko's trademarked uh, rules of engagement, you are first. Yeah, I, I don't honestly have a good idea on this one. I'm going to say to think about giving a presentation, maybe a little daydream. Uh, we'll go with a very low 30%. Okay. Okay, I'm going to say uh, extremely like to think about it uh, with uh, 20, 24%. <laughs> 24%. So you're both picking the same one to think about giving a presentation. Yeah, I would have gone $1 if I had been Joe, but that's fine. Alan's going with 30% and uh, Joe is going with 24%. Yeah. I want right. to that 6% buffer. <laughs> He's trying to hit that target. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, hey, I got to tell you, if it works for you, then, you know, go with it. It didn't work for you this time. <laughs> Oh, but oh, oh. <laughs> no, busted. No, uh, extremely likely to attend is the number one answer. 
All right. Yeah. At what percent? Forty-eight percent. Forty-eight. All right. Yeah. Oh, so there's people at least. So at least half of the people are at least considering the other three options, which is impressive. I like that. Uh, yep, that yep. that's that is the trademark Alan Underwood uh, optimism <laughs> right there <laughs> in action. Yes. The, now thinking about giving was the uh, second answer, but Alan, you overshot it. Oh, but Jay Z didn't. It was twenty nine. Twenty nine. Wow. Oh, hey, wow. That's pretty yeah. good. All that's right. pretty good. Yeah, I was impressed with how close he, how close you got it though. But yeah. Um, but you know, we're not playing horseshoes, so no. close doesn't matter. <laughs> I lost. Does anybody really play horseshoes? Seems like Man, nobody would, but I love horseshoes. It was the last time you played. It's like, it's like the original version of cornhole. Like it's amazing. Okay. I mean, this is total tangent. Like I, I said that jokingly only because like one of my neighbors has a ridiculous, professional kind of setup for it with like stadium seating and they have scoreboards and like they make a big to do of it. And it's super annoying because, uh, you know, <laughs> their parties for horseshoe last, like, you know, and it's an all day affair, but what? Yeah. Right. Exactly. That's my thought. Cause like, otherwise I'm like, wait a minute. No horseshoes is something you do on like a 4th of July, a barbecue or, you know, cookout because like you're not the one cooking and you're bored and there's literally nothing to do except throw this piece of metal at another piece of metal and see who gets closest. <laughs> I love horseshoes, man. I would totally, I need to make friends with your neighbor. I think is what it is really what it was down to. Yeah. I could, I mean, I, I could toss the, the horseshoe. That sounds like fun. Yeah, man. Okay. I think you're only doing it though. So that like I get annoyed by the, you know, clank. Yeah. The all day long horseshoe events. I mean, they have like brackets and everything. Like it's serious, man. They they take it serious. I I'm super excited about that. To be honest with you, I, I seriously mean I, I need to come meet that neighbor. That's that's awesome. You if you saw this setup and how ridiculous it is, I'm not kidding when I say there's like you know bleachers to for stadium seating on it. Like it is <laughs> it is super ridiculous like i didn't realize anybody could love playing horseshoes that much until i saw that setup and i was like oh okay <laughs> um all right so you know we just had new year's so uh you know it's a common thing at least here in the u.s i don't know if it if it uh how popular this tradition is outside of the u.s but you know here in the u.s for new year's you set a resolution and you know, it's a thing of like, eh, it's kind of a joke as to like how often, how long do you keep the resolution? Right? So for this episode survey, we ask, do you stick with your new year's resolutions and your choices are for the first couple weeks or I'm pretty good until spring ish or I'm like a machine. Resolutions are rules that are not meant to be broken or Wait, those things are to be taken seriously? They're broken by noon on New Year's Day. I think I actually know both of yours. Oh? I'm, yeah, I'm pretty sure I know both of yours. Okay. Yeah. I'm listening. Okay, yeah. You are absolutely, these are the rules that are not meant to be broken. I've never met anybody that has such a binary switch for on and off for things as you. Like, People probably don't even know this about you. You decided you were going to stop drinking sodas one year and it, the switch went off. Like you just stopped drinking them. You, <laughs> I don't need it anymore. And then Jay-Z, maybe I'm wrong, 
but I'm thinking you're the springish guy. Is that about uh, which one was spring? I'm looking pretty. Uh, yeah, so I definitely hang on to them, but I also uh, I change. I cannot keep a resolution <laughs> through a whole year. So I, uh, I redo my resolutions every June at a minimum. And even by then, like it's already drifted to the point, like by, by March, like the things I'm doing and like planning on are like totally different from what I planned on. Yeah. Yeah. I've also rewritten my resolutions like five times already for this year. (laughs) I'm trying to make, um, what do they call it? Acrostic where the, like the first letters, uh, spell something. Ah, okay. So. Yeah, for my te- for my tech ones, I'm trying to really pare down the list. So we we should do an episode about this. Hey, we yeah. should also have another option in here, Outlaw. Mm. Uh, what are resolutions? Oh. <laughs> yeah, good point. Okay, yeah. I'll add I'll add that right now. Yeah, yeah. I I always view it though, like in all honesty, uh, as like uh, because they are such a joke. Like if you set a resolution, you just know you're going to break it. Because everybody does. Yeah. But if you aim for nothing, you hit it. Yeah, I'm really good at that. <laughs> All right. I'm like, I'm like 100%. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so I uh, snuck something in here real quick. So, uh, you know, every year for the Game Jam, we do uh, like a rounds of theme voting. And the, the idea is that a theme gives you uh kind of some inspiration you know it's hard to start with a blank page and so the theme is kind of fun and plus it's fun to have a bunch of games that are kind of uh, have something in common and so what, what we do uh, last year we're doing it again this year is we um put out feelers we asked for submissions on the mailing list um forums twitter stuff like that and uh, we gather up lists of suggestions of themes and then we do rounds of voting and uh, we just completed our first round of voting i'm going to go through today and uh turn the ones out and uh, I thought it'd be fun to talk about the list here. And actually, I don't know if this is the full list. I don't know how many we're going to keep, but I just kind of went and grabbed like the top, what looked like the t- roughly the top half of themes. So that'd be fun to kind of talk about uh, what those are. And these are not in any particular order, uh, except the last two, which I, I just thought would be fun to say. <laughs> so uh, th- it looks like all these are going to go on to the next round of voting. And uh, remember that game jam is coming up January 22nd, 24th, sign up. So uh, I'm going to blast through these just really quickly to give you kind of a sense of, uh, you know, what the games are going to be about or what the games might be about. So we got No Time to Lose, Can't Stop, All Your Base Are Belong to Us, There's a Ticket for That, Trust Nothing, Failure is the Option, A Link to Somewhere, The Rising Tide, It's Alive, Work-Life Balance, Spaced Out, it's following me in the last two. I just wanted to say uh, these are probably my two favorites. Uh, we got snake, 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 and game jam two electric boogaloo. <laughs> so thank you. That was uh, from Prodigal, Prodigal Sons Games and uh, Micro G. So I, I've actually I've tracked uh, where every suggestion came from. So thank you to everyone who submitted uh, submitted one, but. Uh, yeah, those two are leading for me. So Excellent. now I assume that you two have also voted. Yeah. I have not. I need to. What, Alan? Dude, my, my life has been complete disarray for the past month. So yeah, I, I will get on there and do it. Here, okay. here I'm not going to accept that excuse because it doesn't take that much effort to click the button to vote. It does. So, I, can't, I can't find anything to click on. So uh, <laughs> no, it's a very good UI. It, don't take that away from Jay-Z. Um, 
Yeah. So I was actually kind of happy because a couple of mine are in, you know, seem to be pretty popular so far. So Yours like, is huh. a ticket. Yours is a ticket for that, isn't it? It's definitely one. Of uh, there were, okay. So there were a couple that I thought like, Oh, that would be kind of funny. Cause I could, uh, continue on with, with the game that I did from last year. Although I don't plan to, cause I'm like, mm-hmm. Oh, that would be like, you know, too derivative and, and boring. Right. But, um, Cause like my, mine last year was a game about a ticketing system for developers. Right. And so there was one that was, a, there's a ticket for that, that is doing pretty well. That I was like, Oh, that's kind of funny. It would, it would, uh, you know, dovetail nicely into it. And then there was another one last year's theme was everything is broken. So there was another one this year that was everything is fixed. Yeah. yeah. Mm. I was like, Oh yeah, those, those would go like pretty, uh, that would dovetail quite nicely from one to the other. I like it. This episode is sponsored by Linode. Simplify your infrastructure and cut your cloud bills in half with Linode's Linux virtual machines. Develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and easier. Whether you're developing a personal project or managing larger workloads, you deserve simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions. You can get started on Linode today with $100 in free credit for listeners of Coding Blocks. You can find all the details at Linode, that's L-I-N-O-D-E dot com slash Coding Blocks. Linode has data centers around the world with simple and consistent pricing regardless of the location. So 100 bucks can get you a lot of Linux in the cloud. If you're doing uh, any sort of uh, web application, you just want to experiment. Uh, if you want to run Kubernetes, um, you, you need some object of persistence. You can use that credit for all of that. It's great for running your personal projects and kind of bootstrapping. And, and it's also just fun to have a computer up in the cloud that you can do stuff with. And so definitely recommend uh, checking out Linode. We use it for uh, all sorts of stuff and uh, definitely racked up quite a few um, like side projects and just kind of experiments uh, now that uh, I've got checked into GitHub here that all are all based in Linode. Yep. So choose the data center nearest you. You also receive 24 by 7 by 365 human support with no tiers or handoffs regardless of your plan size. You can choose shared and dedicated compute instances or you can use that $100 credit on S3 compatible object storage, managed Kubernetes, and more. Hey, if it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Visit linode.com slash coding blocks. Again, that's L-I-N-O-D-E dot com slash coding blocks and click on the create free account button to get started today. All right. So uh, let's talk about secret management. And, you know, I got to be annoying and talk about uh, OWASP here. But this one is really uh, it's kind of bundled with the the last topic that uh, we mentioned, which was about uh, vulnerability, you know, encryption. And so uh, this kind of gets lumped in with cryptographic failures. So this is a very specific kind of portion of that um but it's also maybe the hardest thing in security i don't know it, it's really hard <laughs> I, I don't know i'm pretty good at managing secrets you tell me a secret and i <laughs> i will hold it so yeah. i don't think it's pretty easy it's gotta be a good secret though yeah. I, don't want, I don't want no trash secrets uh, yeah. So, and, and the reason is like, once you start talking about, uh, encryption and security, uh, if the, the question immediately becomes, where do we put the key? And so secret management deals with that question, like protecting and auditing access to secrets. And when we say auditing, we mean seeing when someone has used that secret and knowing whether or not they should have been able to and, and making sure that those patterns make sense. And that's actually the, the right person. Yeah. And, and I put a link in here. It, not because I'm trying to sell HashiCorp Vault to anybody, 
Um, but there is a video about their product that describes why their product even was created. And it talks about the different challenges with dealing with secrets. And so I think it's about a 15 minute video. If you put it on 1.5 speed, then you can cut back on that a bit, but just to get familiar with the landscape of what secret management is, or it, it, and actually I said that wrong. It's not secret management. It's secret storage, right? Um, that kind of stuff, because there's actually a thing for managing keys and stuff that is a separate type deal. So, so I would highly recommend watching this video. We'll have it in the show notes, maybe in the resources. Um, but it, it's a good primer just to understand what you're dealing with. It's also important to note too, like, uh, HashiCorp vault isn't the only capability. Like, um, I remember before vault was the big to do, we used one called secret server. Remember that? And basically the idea was that like that one thing knew all the passwords and you could like, you know, kind of check them out or, or you know, like temporarily use it. But now there's like, um, capabilities last like pass. this. I was about to say last pass for enterprise, for example, kind of fits into that same kind of category where you can like let somebody use the quote secret and, the advantage of like a last pass, for example, you don't even have to know what it is you're using. Like you might not even be able to read the password, but yet you could use it in a, in a form like last pass will fill it in for you. Yep. And, and honestly, I think the only reason why HashiCorp vault is one of the ones that, that I've probably been more drawn to of late is because they have options for like Kubernetes and, and other situations. And so it's something you can deploy with your, you know, your infrastructure. And, and so that's why I bring this one out. Um, but yeah, totally. There, there are several solutions out there and probably a lot of them are very good, right? Like I would have a lot of faith in the last pass one only because Steve Gibson did a write up on the personal last pass one at one point. And it, it was amazing. Like the, the level of detail he went into it. So, so yeah, definitely not the only one out there, but it, like I said, this video is a really good primer and just understanding some of the things out there. And, and so one of the things that they bring up in pager duty is, okay, so we're talking about secrets. Well, what are secrets, right? They can be a token. They can be a key. They can be a password. They can be a username. They can be anything that is sort of sensitive that you want to keep protected, right? That's, that's really what it boils down to. It doesn't have to just be a password. And this next one is amazing because we've talked about it several times. And, and we've all done it. I mean, just about anybody who's ever written any codes probably done this. You should not put secrets in your store, in your source control, right? You need to do your level best to make sure they can't accidentally be added to source control. So if you are using secrets on your local system, they need to be outside the folder where you have your Git repo or whatever source control you're using, right? Like they should not accidentally even be able to be added to source control. This is where it gets complicated, though, because like um, Jay-Z mentioned this in the last episode. And in fact, you had a term for it that I don't remember what it was called, uh, where where you do dev- security development first as part of it. But you oh, know, move left, start left. Yeah, start left. There you go. Like it, it can sometimes just be frustrating, you know, because sometimes you just want to like get started. Right. And solving security isn't the thing that you're trying to solve. And right. But yet you like get lost in like the details of, okay, wait a minute, how do I just move this out? And, you know, sometimes it's just, uh, it, it, 
you know, you're tempted to, to like code that in, but, um, you know, even, even the user ID itself can be a hint as to, uh, what the credential is that you don't really want somebody to know. Yep. Yeah. It's exhausting. Uh, working on security is not fun. <laughs> but there's a real talk. Jay-Z, uh, <laughs> not fun to work on. <laughs> if you're good at it, people don't like you. It's uh, very unfortunate. Oh, that's actually true. People, anytime somebody throws up the security flag, everybody's like, man, I got to get stuff done. You know, yeah. le- le- leave me alone. But it's unfortunate. That's why you yeah. just start left, start there, get really good at it and just, yeah, keep it rolling. Yeah. And, and this whole thing that you shouldn't put secrets in source control, it, it happens all the time. Um, you got to do your best to try and make sure it doesn't. But the problem is anyone with access to that code, now has access to the secrets and we've heard on GitHub and GitLabs and, and probably Bitbucket and every other one have had data breaches to where people were able to log in and download source, uh, source code. So if you have your passwords up there, then people have access to your production systems potentially, right? With all your, your good stuff in there. So here's where you can get super tricky is that like, if you accidentally store it in there, then and you're like, oh well, let me just overwrite the file. Well, technically, it's still in the history, it's still of the there. repo. Yeah. So you totally. didn't really get rid of it unless you like go through an operation, like a destructive operation, to uh, amend the history in your repo, which can get hairy. But that's why there's like services out there, like Secure Code Warrior, right, where you can try to like ingrain these uh, good start left practices into your your processes to where. It, uh, you know, you don't even think about it. Like you're just automatically like, Oh, I know I got to you know use this other thing for my password management and don't uh, add it into the, to my code manually. Yep. Yep. It's so, it's so easy just to co- copy and paste that password in there when you're just working on things just to get it working. You're trying to rule something out. Yeah. Um, so pager uh, duty mentions they use vault. I, th- I mean, vault is if you do anything in Kubernetes, like they're just crushing it. Um, securely stores secrets and provides that audit uh, history that we mentioned and rotating uh, if and when is necessary. Rotating can be really hard and that's why, you know, when stuff does get checked in to get, uh, depending on how things are set up, that can be a really hard lift. Like if you've got a production password in there, that might mean taking production down so you can, um, you know, swap that secret out depending, you know, if you're not set up for it and you should be set up for it. <laughs> But that's one of those things that's hard to bolt in afterwards, which is why we say start with security. Because if you try to go in after the fact and kind of sneak that stuff in, it ends up getting bolted in and it ends up really hampering your ability to adapt to things like that. Whereas if that's part of your kind of um, baked in from day one, then that's going to be something that you're used to dealing with. And, Do you ever notice uh, how like everything in computer science is like this, though? It's like if you uh, like think about the way you write your code, for example. If you uh, don't write your code with unit tests in mind first, then yep. you like bake in dependencies, and then it's like imp- you know near impossible to like get rid of some of those dependencies and to like mock things out so that you can write unit tests for it, right? And here's yet another example where it's like, well, if you didn't <clears throat> code for security up front or keep you know have security in mind when you wrote it up front, then you could end up baking in. Uh, dependencies and, and things that you didn't intend to. And now it's near impossible when it comes time to like, Hey, I need to change your password. And it's like, Oh, it becomes a big to do. Yeah. Well, 
I mean, so I think I talked about this on maybe a previous episode too. I can't remember now, but this whole notion of rotating secrets or rotating passwords or keys or whatever it is, like in the past, I guess in my mind, I always thought, well, if you're rotating keys, that means you have to go back through decrypt everything that was there and then re-encrypt it with a new key. And this is where, again, trying not to roll your own thing really matters because what you'll find out is like Vault and I'm sure a lot of the other password management systems out there, they actually build in versioning with it. So if you have a key that you're using to encrypt data, when you encrypt that data, it'll store the version of that key with the data. And so when you go back to decrypt it, it'll say, hey, go give me version three of this key to decrypt this data. What happens is if you need to roll your keys, typically what you're doing is you're rolling your keys for any new data that comes through, right? So so you're not, let's say that you have a billion items that have been encrypted with keys in the past. You don't want to have to go pull those billion items back out of storage, um, decrypt them, re-encrypt them and store them again. That's a lot of operations. But what happens is, Systems like Vault will actually, you can tell it that, hey, this this key version three is no longer usable for encrypting, right? And so Vault will know, or these other password systems will know, hey, if I need to, if I need to encrypt something, it's got to use version four of the key now, right? But the next time that you go to pull some older information that was encrypted at the time with version three, that old key is still there in the password management system so you can decrypt it. But what happens is when it decrypts it, it will automatically re-encrypt it with a new key to roll that key at the time that it's accessed, right? So this is where just knowing that you're using tools that are built for these things handle all those things for you, right? You're not having to build your versioning system. You're not having to build in the thing that says, no, you can no longer encrypt with this key. That's all handled for you. It's all audited. It's all provisioned. All you have to do is know how to use the system, right? And so it forces you into good practices. And that's why, like at the top of the show, when we were talking about using encryption algorithms and all that, don't roll your own. It's not easy, right? Like even what we're just talking about right here, just encrypting and decrypting something using a system has a ton of other features built in that you might not have even been aware to think about, right? If you were going to roll your own. So, um, you didn't it's, realize uh, you it's, needed. Right. Or didn't need, right? Like enrolling keys has always been something that's really important. If one of your keys is compromised, you don't want to use that anymore to encrypt anything. And if a system has it built in where you can say, hey, just roll this key, you're done, right? Assuming that you're accessing the thing the proper way and using it, all you have to say is roll this key and you're you're completely over now. Now, you might need to, depending on how bad that breach is, and you might say, hey, well, we have a lot of customer information that needs to be in there. So you might yourself say, okay, go download all this stuff and, and have it re-encrypted just to be safe. But at least the tool's there to help you with that. So, Well, it reminds me, too, of some of the conversations that we've had from the Designing Data Intensive Applications book where there were some operations that it was easier to do on a read, you know, on an as-needed read basis than it was to, like, try to you know, for example, rekey your entire index, right? Yep. Um, it might be easier to just leave the current index in place and, you know, as you need to move things along, move it. But I don't remember the specific example that was like that from the Designing Data Intensive Applications book, but I swear there was one like that where it was doing something on the read. Um, 
Do you guys I remember what I'm talking about? Too. I, I, I vaguely remember that too, but I couldn't tell you what it was. I mean, it, I said the indexing, but I feel like that was wrong. But Was it, it the SS tables or something? I, I can't remember. There, there was something where it indexed as it went, and it wouldn't redo the files. I know that, um, for instance, um, oh, we dealt with them in the past, not ORC files. Um what what are the what are the other files? Uh, parquet files, right? Oh yeah, that's a similar type thing. A hoodie. We talked about hoodie at one point. Hoodie does something similar. Is it, it will build transactions on top of it, and then at some point come back and redo it, right? So that it's more efficient and all that. But at any rate, I digress. I mean, the point is, is that like if you think about like a super large system, like um, you know, like a your your Google's, uh, Microsoft. Apple, Facebook, Amazons of the world, right? If, if they had to, uh, re-encrypt like that, you know, Google's key gets out and they need to re-encrypt all the email that's stored on disk, right? You know, that would be a huge operation if it had to be done, you know, all in one shot, right? Versus, Hey, like as that one gets needs to be read, we'll re-encrypt that with a new key as we go. So it's just, so, t- it's just an ability to like scale out your operation to like, you know, doing it on an as needed basis. This episode is sponsored by Shortcut. Have you ever been really happy with your project management tool? Most are either too simple for a growing engineering team to manage everything or too complex for anyone to want to use them without constant prodding. Shortcut is different though, because it's worse. No, 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 no. We mean it's better. Shortcut is a project management built specifically for software teams, and they're fast, intuitive, flexible, powerful, and they have many other nice positive adjectives to go about them. So let's take a look at some of their highlights. Team-based workflows. Individual teams can use Shortcut's default workflows or customize them to match the way they want. Org-wide goals and roadmaps. The work in these workflows is automatically tied into larger company goals. It takes one click to move from a roadmap to a team's work to individual updates and vice versa. They have tight VCS integrations. Whether you use GitHub, GitLab, Bitbucket, shortcut ties directly to them so you can update progress from the command line. Keyboard-friendly interface. The rest of shortcut is just as keyboard-friendly with their power bar, allowing you to do virtually anything without touching the mouse. Throw that thing in the trash. Iterations planning. Set weekly priorities and then let Shortcut run the schedule for you with accompanying burn down charts and other reporting. Give it a try at shortcut.com slash coding blocks. Again, that's shortcut.com slash coding blocks. Shortcut, because you shouldn't have to project manage your project management. Uh, so what else do we have here? Like don't hard code or come up with crazy ways to get secrets in your applications. I feel like we already beat that one. Um, Secrets should never be shared, but then like, is it really a secret? If only you know it. Right. (laughs) Yeah. How many times you've been somewhere where like everybody knows a password for one system. And then if something changes in there, somebody deletes something, you never know who did it. And so uh, that's a bit of a problem (laughs) or worse. How many times have you ever been in a work environment where like somebody's like, Hey, I don't know the password. And they're like, uh, you know, many people chime in. They're like, well, it's probably this. Try this. Right. Right. Yep. Oh, go ahead. Oh, uh, I was going to say uh, another uh, technique here is uh, having a jump server. And uh, the Bastion is the the name I'm familiar with, which basically limits access to uh, those boxes. So basically, you have to jump into that box. And from there, you get into the production system. So that's not going to help you with saving the secrets, but it's a way of uh, changing how you can even uh, access those secrets, which is nice. 
uh, mention. Go ahead. I always just kind of viewed that as like a a gatekeeper between you and like a production system. Not necessarily anything to do with secrets, though. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. That's what I was kind of thinking. It's um, you know, what is that particular about? Like, it, it gives us like one box that can really lock down and kind of make sure is in a you know, a, um is in you know good shape and is monitored and everything it doesn't have crap installed on it you don't have to worry about adware installed or key loggers or anything installed on there uh, because you know you've got that kind of set up uh, and you can really limit what people can do on that box which is nice and also it gives you one spot to turn off so if you want to turn off broad access like boom once just turn that box off or take it off the network or whatever but yeah the secret the secret management aspect of it i don't really get other than that's a good way to kind of make sure you only access it from that one spot yeah, I think what they were trying to get at there is if you can't create more, like there's some systems where you can't have a bunch of passwords, right? Or a bunch of, of logins to that system. So they were saying in the situation, let's say that you have a database that you don't even have control over, who knows? Um, but there's only there's only one set of login credentials to that database system. Because you can't get to that thing directly, you could create a Bastion server people's logins to that that bastion server would have access to that database but your authentication credentials would work for that bastion server and so your access would then be audited right because you'd log into the bastion server and then you could access that that database system that only had one username and password right that's that's probably not a great example but that was how they were saying you could manage a situation where you cannot create multiple logins with fine-grained control in an area um, the next thing that they say, and, and I am huge about this and God, I, I'll have to give an example here in a minute, but it drives me absolutely insane. Never share your passwords over insecure channels. Never. If you're using Slack, that is not secure. That is a public service, right? Um, email. I think email is, is awful. Like I, it, most people don't even know how email works, but if you send an email, it could bounce through a hundred different relay servers on the internet before it gets to where it's actually going, depending on the domains that, that own the emails and all that kind of stuff. Um, SMS is not secure. I can't tell you guys how many times when I was looking to buy a new house that I had people in the mortgage and the real estate industry ask me to send them sensitive information through email. And I'm oh, like, yeah. No, I'm not doing it. Yeah. Do you guys not have a secure file upload system that I can use? Like, if you can't give that to me, then I'm going to have to figure out something like I'll put it up on box for the next 30 minutes and you can download it or something, right? Like, email is the worst. And they're like, well, our email secure. And I'm like, yeah, right. If I'm sending it from some domain that you don't control, email is not secure. Like, you don't know how many hops it's taking before it gets to your network. And that means that my information is sitting on some server out there that you have no idea about. The problem, the problem is, is that for people who aren't in um, technology, they, this is the thing where like, uh, I was thinking about this the other day, like where we use words and, you know, to try to relate things, but then people, that might not be in the same no as you, they hear that word and then they'll, um, uh, you know, use others around it. So like I, the, what brought it up to mind the other day as I was watching, as I was watching a, an old TV show and they were talking about a virus, you know, computer virus and, uh, the, um, 
in the show, they were referring to the cure for the, the computer virus in like medical kind of terms. Right. And it was just because like, you know, this common word of virus was being used to describe this thing. Right. And in the case of email, right. Like it has this, uh, you know, the root of the word mail in there. And so people assume like, Oh, well it works like how my, my mailbox does. Like I, I put a two Alan Underwood on the envelope and it's from Joe Zach. And you know, you can't read the contents of what's in that envelope and you know, you just see the metadata of who it's to and from. And that's not true. In the case of email, as it's going around across the internet, it's more like a postcard. Everybody can read that postcard if they wanted mm-hmm. to take the time to read it. But, you know, trying to explain that to like, you know, your parents, for example, who, who, you know, are very comfortable with how mail works and maybe not so much into the, into computers, you know, it's, it's different story, right? Yeah. And, and what most people don't realize too, is not only is it readable by those, you don't know the path it's taking, right? So in your, in your real world mail example, you know, somebody from the post office is picking it up and then delivering it to another spot. So it's a trusted service, right? We'll call it in, in the email world, I can set up a mail relay server myself in, in almost no time. And that means that I can now be one of these routable places on the web that is a, is a hot point for mail to make it to somewhere else. Right. So I potentially have copies of, of a lot of people's emails on my own server. And it drives me absolutely insane when companies, industries that deal with sensitive data don't know what they're telling people to do. I actually had a bank person one time tell me, um, I, I forgot to, I've, I lost my password for logging into a bank account. Right. And she's like, well, your, your, your secret in here, like your mother's last name or your mo- mother's maiden name or something. It looks like gibberish. I would just put the same answer for all these three security questions. And I was like, I know you're not telling me that. Like, please tell me as a professional in the baking industry, you're not telling me to use the same simple answer for all these three security questions so that anybody could get into my account. Like that doesn't make sense. I I hate the idea that these security questions have become like so commonplace in the last couple of decades. Like it it is a thing. I, I, I don't put real information in there. I don't either. In, in, um, in my password manager, I'll like keep track of like what the question was and what the answer was that I used. And they'll always be bogus gibberish, gibberish. stuff. Can't They're even not, read it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, two factor authentication or something like that. But at any rate, yeah, man, just be aware of if you're using some sort of service like Slack or email or SMS or whatever, do not, if somebody's like, Hey, what's the password to the database? You can't get in. Don't put it on Slack. <laughs> like, don't. Um, I don't, I, I almost put in here, but this might be wrong. Something like Microsoft teams. I'm not sure. Is that a hosted service from Microsoft and is it encrypted end to end? I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think you can have hosted solutions too. So you could run your own. I know they used to. I, yeah. I remember back in the day when, when companies would buy exchange server and an office or whatever, they, you could have the messaging that was actually hosted internal to the company. Um, but that also brings up another point. Don't, don't just assume that whatever your communications on any of these platforms are, are private, right? Like if, if you're working for a company, um, just assume they can read everything you're saying, right? Yeah, like, even if it was 
uh, encrypted or whatever, like I, I still like, you still wouldn't want to, um, you know, use that as, you know, to share the password because like, let's pick on Slack for a moment. Like, let's pretend that Slack was encrypted end to end communication and it was encrypted at rest. rest. The problem is, is that like, it's trivial with Slack to go and like download the, you know, the entire, you know, conversation history or, uh, go through past conversations. Like it, it's not, it's not difficult. And like Slack has a really good API that you can go through with. So like, you know, those past conversations, even though they might've like aged out of view to where you can't see them, they're still there. Right. Right. They even, if you're on a plan that says, Hey, you know, pay X number a month for, you know, to unlock more messages. As soon as you do that, then all your old history shows back up, right? Like they're not deleting that stuff. So very important. But here's the interesting thing about what they said is, hey, look, it's not the end of the world if, you, if you're if you listening to this right now and you realize, oh, man, I just put in the, the past 10 um, production passwords to all the systems, right? It's not the end of the world. It happens. But what they do is they let their security team immediately know that there was a problem, right? And we assume that you have a security team because you're big enough and they got the budget for it. Um and then you find out how you need to rotate the keys and the passwords or whatever it is that you shared. And then you have to do that. Like it's, it's a big deal. Like they basically make it out. Like if you accidentally do share it, there are steps that you need to take to mitigate that at that point. Yeah. The point was, is that like, you, you're not going to be judged. You're not going to be like, you know, people aren't going to get mad at you. It happens. And, you know, we have uh, procedures and facilities in place to allow the ease of rolling the passwords. And so it's better that you speak up as soon as you know that this is an issue so that we can go ahead and get that process started. And, you know, and then you'll learn from it. Yep. You know, like there's always the joke about like, uh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but like every time there's like an AWS outage or something like that. And, you know, you find out that it's a configuration bug that like brought down all of AWS or something like that. And, you know, a lot of people will joke like, well, I guess somebody got fired today. But I always think that like, no, that person is now an employee for life because they learned a very valuable lesson that they won't make again. And, you know, management probably recognizes that like, huh. You know, so I mean, like, was it costly? Yeah, sure. But, you know, you benefit from it. You do. And and on top of that, typically companies like Ada or Amazon or whoever, they learn that, oh, well, we need to probably have another check in place to make sure that this can't happen, right? It, it, it strengthens the system overall over time. Yeah, totally. So. Now, I'm being totally optimistic. They probably totally were fired. So, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the dark. But I want to believe in the world, though. I want to believe right. in it. So, uh, uh, it's going to happen again. Uh, it's a. Uh, <laughs> I want to be curious about the rates. I don't know if, uh, like security uh, organizations, like if you're working on a security team in a big organization, if they like keep track of stuff like that, like how often things get logged or how often they have incidents. I do think that they do. It'd be cool to see, uh, see that over time. Cause you know, it's going to happen again. So uh, yeah, I agree. Like firing the person who did it is a terrible idea because it's one of those things that like happens pretty often. <laughs> right. Well, speaking of logging and this is by no way, uh, a stab at the uh, log for J bug, but um, they say to never log to let allow your secrets to be logged. So 
Yeah. You know, when you are logging things from your application, you don't want to log like, oh, hey, and here's the credentials that I used. Uh, because again, even the user ID itself could be a uh, a leakage of information, right? Like um, if, if it was always the same user that was being used for everything, then somebody who was trying to break into the system would know like, Oh, okay, there's only this one user. And if I find that one password, then I'm, then I'm good versus, uh, you know, if you had like different users for different activities or whatnot. So, um, you always want to like make it difficult, you know, not give away any information for somebody who might be trying to break into the system. So don't, don't log anything related to secrets. Yeah. And they, they did point out that, you know, this could actually be really bad if let's say that your service that you provide is some sort of, you know, transitional behind the scenes thing that allows customers to log into something else. The one that comes to mind is I remember years ago when I was running a bunch of different WordPress sites, like to upgrade and manage plugins and WordPress can be an absolute pain in the butt. If you've got a bunch of different sites, right? You have to log into each one individually. Well, there were some services out there that would allow you to put in your credentials and it would automatically go and log into those systems for you, right? Well, if they were logging and they were accidentally logging out your credentials to those sites, that's really bad, right? So you want to be super careful about what you're logging because it might not even be your sensitive information. It could be your customer sensitive information. And it includes the email addresses, phone numbers, names. Yep. Yep. And and they say, be sure you're sanitizing your log data, right? So um, if you know there are certain fields in, in your data sets that, that have sensitive information, just make sure those don't go in or um, what's it called when you, when you mark them through uh, redact, redact mask, do something like that. Right. So that, so that it just doesn't show up in the logs. Yeah. I'm always surprised that like, um, I know I've picked on Jenkins a lot in, in recent episodes, but uh, I'm always surprised with Jenkins with how well it does at masking things. Like if it, it'll recognize like, Oh, I think this is a user credential. So I'm going to go ahead and mask it in the, in the log. Yeah, that's nice. So, hey, and so I had one last link I threw in here and I think this came from pager duty. It was, and this was an overview of different secret management tools. And what I like about this is if you guys ever gone searching for, you know, I don't know, software or something, and you'll get people that just put bullet points next to things like this one has this and this one doesn't have this. And it's like, well, that doesn't tell me anything. This is actually a really nice write-up that somebody from PagerDuty did that sort of talks about the things that these tools were useful for and why you might choose one over the other. So this was a, a really good brief write-up of a bunch of different tools that were that were just excellent to be able to to browse quickly. So uh highly recommend checking that out. If you don't have any secret management tools or anything, uh, this would be a good place to start looking at them. Yeah. And with that, uh, we wrap it up. So we'll have a bunch of links uh, to the resources we like for this episode. And with that, we head into Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the tip of the week. All right. So sticking with the theme of this particular show and being that I mentioned vault several times, HashiCorp vault several times in the episode, I thought I would give the tip of the week of one of the reasons why you might want to consider vault and it's their plugin architecture. 
So behind the scenes, Vault mostly stores secrets and versions and all that kind of stuff, right? It also does so much more. It can be an encryption um, uh, in transit, like access or, or, or API, so that you can encrypt stuff using the service. There's all kinds of things. But what's really cool about it is they really try and set it up to where you're not storing or dealing with the secrets directly at all. So for instance, they have plugins for authentication and what it is is sort of a pass through to different things. So you can authenticate with Kubernetes, Okta, Radius, TLS certificates, usernames, passwords, GitHub, cloud, all kinds of things, right? They, they have plugins that will pass through and use the systems behind the scenes that need to do that authorization. Another thing that I thought was really great in we've dealt with this stuff in the past too, is you don't necessarily want your applications logging directly into a database. This thing can provide that pass through authentication for you. So um, as long as your system or your service is authenticated to vault, then vault can actually provide the login mechanism to Postgres, Elasticsearch, Couchbase, Couchbase, Cassandra, MySQL, MariaDB, all kinds of things, right? So they have plugins for all kinds of things. And, and another one that's a big one that I mentioned earlier in the show is secrets management is different than key management. So if you're creating keys like asymmetric or symmetric keys for encrypting data, a lot of times that is not in your secret stuff. That's what you're using to encrypt data. They have pass-throughs for Google key management services, AWS's key management services, Azure, so that you can actually call Vault to give you a key to do encryption. And behind the scenes, it will use the key management services in the cloud so that you don't have to code your application to use one specific implementation. It'll use Vault's abstraction. So tons of plugins for this thing that make it extremely useful, especially if you're working in a cloud world or some sort of cloud agnostic world that you want to deal with. Very cool. Jay-Z? All right. Yeah. So uh, I'm still super hyped about the game Jam. And so I've been doing a lot of uh, kind of prepping and even streaming of the game dev stuff. So I wanted to share a couple things that I thought were really, like, uh, just really useful that I've kind of discovered recently. And uh, it just kind of goes along with what I've said before, which is, uh, you know, Unity and I'm sure Unreal and Godot have the same kind of things um, where it's uh, basically common game functionality is built in to the tools. And so um, the two I wanted to mention now are uh, animation clips and nav meshes. And so animation clips are a way to create, you know, animations, which, you know, I, I kind of originally associated with being like advanced character animations, like a character picks something up or shoots a gun or something or jumps. Uh, but you can actually create animation clips for all sorts of tweens, which is basically uh, moving between two numbers. So if like, if you want to rotate an object, then you can do it with an animation clip. If you want to uh, change the color over time or something, you can do that here. And basically what you do is you start, uh, you def- define keyframes and say, <laughs> uh, second zero, this needs to be this value. And the second five, it needs to be, you know, these values. And uh, it, it can go um, just get crazier from there. But uh, that's much easier than kind of creating um, the kind of classes that you see a lot of times in like Unity tutorials, which do like one thing, like changing a value or rotating an object or applying a force or something to it. And so it's something I've come to more recently, but it just makes it much more powerful. 
but don't worry. There's still plenty of code to write because, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it just, you're working at a higher level at that point. So it's nice. Originally I was doing a lot of like C sharp stuff just to like turn things on an axis or pivot things. And it's just, it, you just don't need to do that. And the second one I want, want to is, uh, <laughs> wanted to mention is, uh, nav meshes, which are really efficient way to create uh, kind of navigable zones. So you can do basically a star kind of pathfinding type things where you can kind of tag these objects as being uh, navigation static. So saying they're not going to move. And what unity is going to do is it's going to go and it's going to bake a navigation polygon that can figure out what objects can do to kind of walk around your scene. And from there you can give those objects, they call them nav, uh, nav secure, nav mesh security agents. You can tell these agents, Hey, go to this spot and they'll figure out based on that mesh that was created, the fastest way to get there, most efficient way to get there. And so what it, it gives you is really quickly and really easily a way to have things moving around your map and walking around obstacles and, uh, it gets more advanced and so you can have them doing jumps and, um, avoiding objects dynamically and stuff. But it's it just, uh, it really gets you a long way through uh, a lot of the way through a lot of different kinds of games like tower defense. I remember uh, last game jam, we saw a lot of tower defense games and I was really surprised over that. And we kind of talked about it. And some of the feedback we got was, uh, people said that tower defense games are one of the easier types of games to create. I thought that seemed totally ludicrous at the time. And now I get it in like 10 minutes. I can set up a nav mesh with some obstacles and have things avoiding it and other things shooting at it. It's crazy. And so uh, I recommend uh, just for anything in unity, giving a Google first, because uh, although it can be frustrating, sometimes it kind of feels like you're dealing with you know, almost like third parties, you know, where you're constantly having to learn new system after new system, you can really get a lot done. And a lot of times these systems interact with each other. And so it's, it's worth uh, taking the time to learn those things rather than recreating your own. And uh, like I said, don't worry, there's still plenty of C-sharp to write. So, yeah, so I guess your code that you're writing then is more about the the actual business logic of the game as opposed to just trying to twirl something on the screen, right? Like, So I would say integration. It's just kind of like web development or anything else now. Uh, after, you know, maybe back in the 90s, you were writing a lot of, you know, P tags and divs. And you were writing a lot of select name from table where clauses type stuff. But in the year 2020, you're doing a lot more integration with different tools and ORMs and uh, APIs and, and things like that. And so the, the code that you write nowadays and like web development is much different than the, the code that you wrote 20 years ago. And that can be frustrating sometimes. You see my code? Maybe not. <laughs> yeah. You're still, uh, you're still writing P tags and link tags. <laughs> marquee tag that's right cool i i have a feeling though that like when the game january comes around like you know joe joe has been like constantly like two three times a day uh live streaming his uh unity efforts here on twitch you know for the past couple weeks so like by the time the game jam comes along he's going to destroy us yeah he'll have some like super well polished you know game like i might as well just spend the game jam playing overwatch and like <laughs> Joe will have recreated overwatch. Right. I promise you that will not be the case. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, I, for my tip of the week, I don't know that I'd ever mentioned this one before, but, um, I thought that I would, cause it's a pretty useful plugin for Chrome called go full page. 
And despite its name, uh, what it does is it takes a screenshot of your page and uh, it can be super handy. So like, you know, especially for work dev kind of purposes, you know, maybe you have a, a page that scrolls the entire screen and you want a screenshot of the whole thing to like write up a ticket or whatever. Um, this plugin can uh, scroll the screen to get the entire screenshot for you. Um, so pretty nice little thing. I'll, I'll have a link to that in the uh, uh, show notes for the tip of the week. And yeah, go full page dot com is the uh the website for it but you know obviously the chrome store link is a lot of gibberish so i'll include that version of it as well and with that uh yeah hope you've enjoyed this uh uh summary of pager duties amazing uh security training that they've provided out i don't think we technically finished it though um we probably got through like number three of their bullet points um, four. we got through four. Okay. Four. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So, uh, subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. Hey, by the way, like I said, if you haven't already left us a review, and even if you have left us a review, if you're a Spotify user, uh, we would greatly appreciate some, uh, reviews there. Just, uh, click that star button and, uh, you know, that five star, obviously let's be clear. And, uh, yeah, we would greatly appreciate it. Uh, Alan's going to update the site where you can find some helpful links at www.codingblocks.net slash review. Hey, and while you're up there, make sure you check out our copious show notes, examples, discussions, and more, and send your feedback, questions, and rants to our Slack channel, which if you're not a member of, you should go check it out at codingblocks.net slash Slack. And uh, you need some tweets. We got some tweets over on Twitter at CodingBlocks. And uh, you can also go to the website, CodingBlocks.net, and find uh, links up there to all of other uh, socials and, uh, you know, get you, get you some tweets. <laughs>